glad to have everyone here joining together in praise and worship with the Lord. Um, last week, Matt covered the first half of Ephesians chapter 4, and Matt entitled it uh, Adulting, and focused on how each of us need to mature in our faith and understanding, and how that maturity will bring each of us to some point of usefulness in God's kingdom by gifts or abilities. You see, when someone finds forgiveness and hope in Jesus Christ, it is not only for their good, but for the good of the kingdom and all who will come in contact with that person. God built you and I for relationships, and that is the setting where he will mature us. That is where we will find our noble and glorious purpose in him. As a wide older brother once told me years ago, you need to be concerned, Bill, for the depth of your knowledge of God and your faithfulness to him. And God will determine gifting the extent and direction of your service for him. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would bring understanding here morning, greater understanding for each of us. Lord, I pray that you would silence all those distractions that are in our lives, things that have caught our attention, that even now are distracting us. Please, Lord, free each one of us in here from those things and from, from the demons who would try to bring us low, Lord. Lord, please give us all ears to hear what you have to say in your scripture and help us to grow in faithfulness. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's look today at today's passage. It's in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 through 32. You'll find that in the Pew hymnal on 978. You want to look in 978, that's where we'll be beginning. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, chapter, chapter 4, verse 17 through 32. Now I say this and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to their hardness of heart, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the word of Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore... Having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk Come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. 
And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. God in Christ forgave you. So let's start with verse 17. Where it says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. You know, back then at the time this is writing, pretty much everybody walks. A few people might have a horse or two, but not very many. Everybody navigates life by walking. And so walk, the word walk, became a symbol of one's choices and the direction to their life. How and where you chose to walk was like people today saying that they're choosing a lifestyle. Our take us down a path. And Paul is reminding the Ephesians not to take the path of the Gentiles. So back up a little bit. Just who are the Gentiles? Most of you know, but I think maybe some might not. So God chose Abraham and his descendants, the Jews, to become the nation through whom he would reveal himself and his plans and his purposes for all other peoples of the world. The Gentiles are the other peoples. Could be you and me. I'm not Jewish. Scripture speaks of Jews and Gentiles. Paul helped plant the church in Ephesus, and he spent years with them. Paul knows who he is addressing when he's writing to them. The church is made up of nearly all Gentiles. So why would he be writing, no longer walk as the Gentiles do? What if Paul wrote a letter to us saying, no longer walk as the Americans do, in the futility of their minds? How would that strike you? What was he after? I, I, I don't think he's trying to be insulting because he knows them very well. They're friends with him. I propose that Paul is trying to address the Ephesian culture, its history, influence on them. So let's look at some of that history. I'm going to go back about 500 years before Paul's there uh, in Ephesus. Ephesus at that point had been embracing the Greek gods to explain the reasons for why life is the way it is. And Artemis was the hometown goddess of the Ephesians. She watched over the hunt and fertility and all births and prosperity. And there was a temple erected to her in Ephesus. It was immense and elaborate. It covered an entire football field with 60-foot marble columns holding up a roof. It was a source of pride for the Ephesians. And it was also one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Greek gods were a really big source of profit for Ephesus. About that time, 500 or so years before Paul was there, the Greek philosophers were coming on to the scene and they were departing from the Greek mythology of human-like gods controlling nature. One such philosopher was a guy named Heraclitus from Ephesus, and he was one of the first ones. And he and others after him were looking for, among other things, the Logos, 
That is a word that means reason or purpose. Trying to find the reason or purpose of things. They didn't think it was these human-like gods. In contradiction to the idea of many gods, these ancient philosophers thought there could be a different explanation. And some reason that if things seemed designed, there was a unifying force or a designer. And whatever was designed had a purpose, a logos. And if that purpose was discovered and cooperated with, then the beauty of that creation would be fulfilled and set free and it could reach its potential. Conversely, if we worked against the created logos, the created order, it would work out pretty poorly. So now I'm going to give an absurd example to make a point. You know, if in my foolishness I decided to paddle my canoe down my gravel lane, I would soon run into the hard reality that my creative freedom can't overcome the friction of the road. The canoe's design and purpose, or logos, would be violated. Things would go pretty poorly. But if I pushed off that same canoe into a lake or a stream, I would paddle and glide and the beauty of my canoe would carry me on my way. That's what they mean by logos, the reason or purpose. Philosophers spent time trying to use logic, which is a word that comes from the word logos, uh, to search for the purpose and meaning and reason behind life together. How were people designed to live? would have been one of their questions. Different philosophers, different, excuse me, different philosophical schools of thought wrestled with finding the Logos for centuries. And by the time of the first century when Paul is there, doubt and the lack of agreement had led to despair about knowing the reason for human life. At that time, there was a philosophical school called the Skeptics, and yes, there was such a philosophical school. And they were winning the day. If there was no reason to life, why couldn't you live and believe anything you wanted? After all, who can know for sure? They were skeptical. And since people have indulged in aimless pleasure and lived happy lives, why not pursue pleasure? They concluded the classical virtuous life was not necessary. So let's continue with some of Paul's reasoning in verse 18, where he describes them. He says, They are darkened understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to their hardness of heart, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed, to practice, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. See, by the time of Paul, the futility of their thinking and the infection of the skeptic's philosophy had moved the dominant culture into embracing the gods who they had had and also pleasure-seeking because it didn't matter. Because they had set aside the pursuit of a logos down through the centuries, a creator's design, the Logos, they were greedy to explore their own imagination, their own personal preference, their own personal logic, and the skeptic's mindset that the skeptic is the measure of all things, not a Logos, not a design to be embraced, was what went on. 
And Paul is telling them, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Your many gods are superstition and doubting the creation's design and purpose to pursue, to pursue mere pleasure is leading to willful ignorance. Today, right now, Paul might warn us and say, you must walk as Americans do. Your popular culture is losing itself in the pursuit of pleasure, self-absorption, sensuality, and has lost sight of even considering the Creator's purpose. Paul is warning them and us that the culture around us can have a compromising effect on us. It tends to pull us away from our purpose, just like the undertow of the ocean currents on the be near the beach. We must resist the current or else we will find ourselves far from where we intended to be. So we need to stand firm. Let's move on to more scripture. When Paul writes, that is not the way you learn Christ in verse 20. He is writing that with a smile. It is because he knows what he covered with them over the three years he spent discipling them as he planted the church. He knows that's not the way they learn Christ. His teaching is pertinent to us today. In verse 22, he writes, Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And in verse 24, he writes, Put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness. Put off your old self, put on your new self. The way we learn Christ is not just a pursuit of knowledge about Christ. It should lead to self-examination and practical actions on our part. We are renewed in the spirit of our minds as we simultaneously put off our formal, former feudal way of living with self-focus, pride, and indulgence, and put on the new self that comes with embracing Christ's selfless example and the purpose he has for our life. Before we address the specifics to put on and put on, put, put off and put on in the rest of the chapter from verses 25 to 32, I would like to point out that we have actually already addressed a very large but subtle one of putting off and putting on. You see, our worldly culture is around us, and I know of no time in our history right now for us in this room, where the culture in America is trying so hard to force you into the way it thinks. From the news being filtered by the media, to people being fired or canceled for not agreeing with the cultural elites, to people trying to intimidate your speech if it disagrees with them. The culture around us has a growing demand for our allegiance. But as the apostle said, should we obey man rather than God? There are growing aspects of our American culture that we are to put off. And we are to put on our allegiance to Christ and his kingdom and practice discernment. So now let's go on to verse 25, the major part of putting off and putting on. In verse 25 it says, put off falsehood. 
Well, this covers our lies, our deception, our exaggeration, our half-truths, and even our just making things up. And why do we do this? Because we can gain some advantage or support our pride or avoid trouble and consequences or embarrassment. Falsehood misrepresents or contradicts the truth. Falsehood can ruin relationships. Falsehoods can sabotage other people's decisions based on our bad information. It can also be deadly. Right now, the people of Russia are being fed propaganda, well-designed falsehoods. Many are reasoning that Putin is doing right in Ukraine and that there is no war going on. It has been said that the first casualty of war is the truth. Falsehoods can be deadly. If you have ever experienced the damage done to you by falsehoods about you, you know what trouble it can cause. It can cost you close relationships. It can cost you your job. And it can cause you a lot of pain. You know, my own real sins and clumsiness are enough for me to have to set right for myself. I don't need somebody's false accusations or misrepresentations about me to muddy up the further, and neither do you. So let us not participate in falsehood. We are to put on speaking the truth. The world is so full of falsehood as it is. Let's try to be honest as we can be, just as we would like others to be honest with us. On to verse 26 and 27 where it says, put off sinful anger. It's pretty obvious that outbursts of nasty, hateful anger and being very rude are obviously sinful and wrong. But so are some of the quiet anger that we sometimes can give room to. It mentions not letting the sun go down on your anger. And that is anger we're continuing to dwell on, maybe for days, maybe for weeks. That is quiet anger that goes on and cultivates bitterness. When we dwell on the offense for day after day, we can give the devil a foothold. It can breed ill will towards others. If you find you are imagining and maybe even hoping for harm or trouble to come on others who have harmed you, you are moving down the path the devil has used to create vengeance and broken relationships. And yes, even murder is a little further down that path, but it's on that same path. So, we are to give and seek forgiveness quickly. We are to put on patience, understanding, and blessing for cursing. Jesus has put up with you and I and offers us mercy and forgiveness. How can we harbor anger toward others and expect mercy from him? Jesus has called us to even go so far as to love our enemies. Verse 28, another put off, put on, put off stealing. 
You know, the whole motivation and mindset behind stealing needs to be put off. When I covet things, I am letting things be the answer to my hope for happiness. My love for things that I can see tempts me away from the God I cannot see. The devil lies to me that things are the ultimate, and I must find my joy and happiness in them. I'm already prone to let my life revolve around me. He just nudges me along. When I move under the mercy and forgiveness of Jesus, my allegiance changes, and God's priorities become mine. I put off my self-centered focus and put on God's priorities, and God wants me to love my neighbor as myself, which means I no longer look at my work as only a way of taking care of my wants, but now I look at my work as a way to gather enough to share with others in need. Put off stealing. Basically, put, off gener- put on generosity. Verse 29, another put off put on is put off corrupting talk. The word translated as in this particular verse is actually the same word we talked about earlier. It's the logos. So corrupting talk is more than just degrading, slandering, or defaming words, as some might suppose. A corrupted logos would be a corrupted representation of God's purpose and design for people. It would be a misrepresentation of God's God's order, God's reason for living. We are to put off reimagining God and his will from our preferences or ignorance and put on an accurate representation of God consistent with his revealed word that we find in the Bible. We are to speak of him as accurately as possible in a way that will build others up in the faith and reveal the grace, mercy, and purpose of God and his gospel. On to verse 30 and 31. So we are to put off doing things that grieve the Holy Spirit. You know, I think the Holy Spirit is not too surprised or bummed and grieving that sometimes I'm clumsy and sin. Actually, I think the key in this verse here is when you look to the verse, it says, let, in verse 31. And it is the key word. Is, is in what we call the passive voice in Greek. And so this means, when it says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and so on be put away from you, the Spirit wants to work on these things in us, and we are to let him train us by learning obedience as he points out our flaws. We are to let him in to help change us. You know, think of it this way. Uh, The coach you might have if you're in a sport is making you ready with endurance and skills that will prepare you for the game. He gives you hard training and practice in doing what is right. And sometimes you do well and sometimes you're good enough. But the coach keeps working you until you get it right. The Holy Spirit is leading you through circumstances in this life where you will face temptation and trials and your selfishness so he can train you to have a godly response. He keeps working you until you get it right. 
You were meant for noble, godly character, and he will train you through and past your sinful tendencies. He wants the best for you, which is to be conformed to the image of Christ. Again, the key word is let him train you through life experiences. Don't training because it is stressful or hard. Training in most anything that is worthwhile is rigorous. Will you let all those flaws he is trying to expose in you be dealt with and put away? He is preparing you to be welcomed into the kingdom of God with a well done, my good and faithful servant, being pronounced on you and not a, why did you skip practice? As we let God take us through life, we are putting on a willingness, a submissive attitude to be. And the Spirit will arrange training opportunities for us to learn kindness with people that are mean and being tenderhearted to people that are grumpy and prickly and to train us to have a forgiving attitude to those who need to be asking for it but are too hateful to do that. Why? Because... While we were yet sinners, Christ died to show love to us. He wants us to show love to them and mercy to them. Now finally, as we finish up, I want us to look at the writing of another apostle who came to after Paul and became the bishop of Ephesus for many years. His name is John. And he became well acquainted with the city's philosophers and culture and history. And he wrote the Gospel of John. Would you please turn with me to the beginning of the Gospel of John? Uh, if you're looking in the Pew Bible, it's on page 886. 886 in the Pew Bible. And we'll just start right in the first, the first verse of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is all about the wonder of Jesus. I want you to return to that word I've used several times, the word logos. See, John was fully aware of what logos meant and the effort of the ancient philosophers to discover the reason and purpose for life. He knew it to be, that word, to be the final word on everything. Why? So when he wrote the gospel in Greek, it says, in Greek in that passage, it says, in the beginning was the logos the reason for life. And the Logos was with God. And the Logos was God. The reason for life was with God and was God. There's the answer to the people who he is addressing in Ephesus. I think John's, John's book is much more, much more written for those um, who were not from Jewish background and especially those who might have had understanding of uh, the Logos coming from uh, the philosophers 
from Greece. We have translated logos as the word. We use the word, the word word for lots of things. Is the man as good as his word? There's lots of ways we use that. What God's after in here is for us to see that it has a lot to do, John has a lot to do with the reason for life. I think John was very purposeful in his choice of words. The Logos was not a unifying elementary design or force like the philosophers had thought maybe it was. It was a person. Jesus' reason and purpose for life. We all have been designed to live a noble and purposeful life. And the key that makes that happen is Jesus. You know, as the team comes up, I want you to remember about the stuff we've talked about with putting on and putting off. In your bulletin, there's a spot in there asking you to consider two things that the Lord's got your attention with to put off and maybe examine yourself for two things that the Lord wants you to put on. It is in that way we make this a practical teaching for ourselves.